Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are back with another edition of Reviewing the News, and per usual, our topics range from the really important to the really ridiculous. But whether we are talking about the very serious topic of wildland firefighters potentially taking a drastic pay cut, or whether we're talking about derogatory terms being a sign of Canadian affection, well, Cody Townsend and I are here to guide you through it all. And speaking of really important topics, I want to remind you about our Blister Plus membership. With our Blister Plus membership, you will have access to all of our content, including our members-only Blister Happy Hour live stream conversations, where our guest this Wednesday, August 2nd, will be Atomic Ski Boot product manager Matt Manzer. That conversation is going to take place at 12 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on Wednesday, August 2nd. So if you are a Blister member, join us then and come prepared for any and all questions you might have for Matt. Additionally, and really importantly, Blister Plus members also get $25,000 worth of injury insurance if, and let's be honest here, it's not if, but when, we get injured skiing or mountain biking or snowboarding or climbing or kayaking or running or just commuting to work on your bike. Citizens and residents of all countries around the world are eligible and you are covered anywhere in the world. We will include a link in the show notes of this episode where you can find a complete list of the activities that are covered under our Blister Plus injury insurance and find all of the details you need. Because seriously, you wouldn't go mountain bike or ski or snowboard without wearing a helmet and you shouldn't go ski or ride without this Blister Plus coverage. So again, check out the link in the show notes of this episode, sign up now before you get hurt, and then your wallet will be protected as well as your head. And now, let's review the news with one fairly sleep-deprived but still pretty sharp Cody Townsend. Here we go. All right, well, Cody... You're back once again, fresh off some travel difficulties. Remind me to never go anywhere with you. I think that's what I've learned over the last several years. I think it's just uh, there's a combo. I've been just having really bad luck, especially when it's pressed up to us recording podcasts, which I did. You kind of I heard you sort of sold me out saying like, we're going to have the new reviewing the news up on Monday. And you were like texting me on Friday. Be like, you want to record? I'm like, no, I'm going to Colorado. What the hell? <laughs> like You really put me under the pressure here. But um, I think it's a combo of some bad luck recently and being mainly flying on United, which like I've seen some recent data. It's like the 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 United 
data when it comes to delays and cancellations is like double and triple the next competitor. They're just the worst. And it's also a worst because of their hubs being Chicago and Denver. And so on the way out to Colorado, <clears throat> my wife and son, we went out for this uh, Tin Cup event. Uh, event was awesome. It was getting there and getting home, which was not. So yeah, uh, airport was shut down. Didn't get in until Granby, Colorado till about three in the morning, which with the toddler is always like, it's like traveling with a ticking time bomb. You just feel like it's going to go off at any moment and it's just going to turn into just pure terror for everybody. But uh, he did surprisingly well. Um, and then on the way home, we were kind of rushing to the airport and we were like, we want to stop in Denver, do some things. We didn't quite have time, traffic, I-70, all that kind of stuff. And then about five miles away from the airport, they let us know that our flight was canceled. So <clears throat> we didn't get in until this morning, this Monday morning, um, after, yeah, what's supposed to be is one flight, like a two hour, hour, 45 minute flight and both ways ended up being like 12 to 24 hour debacle. So thanks United. I'm glad that, you know, I'm such a loyal member of your mileage plan and I just continually doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> I'd like to think that this was karma you know, you came to our lovely state of Colorado and you didn't even swing through Crested Butte. So I, no I think you got what you deserved. Mm. Well, I, I saw Connor. I got to hang out with Connor. That was pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I'm. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. So okay. don't mess with, car, with karma, Cody. Right. And this means, well, maybe the next time you'll be in Colorado... That I'm not going to fly through Denver. I'll try and get to Montrose or maybe fly into Salt Lake and then drive the rest of the way. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure it out. Like that. Yeah, I'll figure that out. So anyways, um, yeah, let's, uh, are we going to review some news here? Yeah, we have kind of a, it's an interesting range of topics for this month. One that we wanted to open with, this actually was submitted to us. Uh, this topic was submitted to us by Quinn. Quinn wrote us, uh, hi there, my name is Quinn. I was hoping I could bring something to the attention of you and Cody for the Reviewing the News podcast. Wildland fighters are poised to take a large pay cut this fall, and Grassroots Wildland Fighters has put up an in-depth article about this, as well as a petition to sign to send to Congress to help this not happen. So we will include a link uh, to this article and the petition, but the long and the short of it is this. On September 30th of this year, federal wildland fighters will take a drastic pay cut if Congress doesn't take action to pass legislation avoiding the firefighter fiscal cliff. Man, we've certainly been in a pretty serious wildfire season. Uh, we are actually currently dealing with a wildfire here in the Gunnison Valley that this one was uh, set off by a lightning strike. And so I have a hunch this one is going to hit home to a lot of our listeners and certainly a lot of folks, well, frankly, at this point, we just say living anywhere in North America, uh, let alone other parts of the world. So I don't know, thoughts on this, Cody? Yeah, I mean, it brings up a lot of things. Um, the first thing I think about is honestly how much news and action is dictated in these like small margins of government. Um, 
like these kind of bills and these kinds of measures and these kinds of things that are inserted into larger bills. And they're, they're just, they fly under the radar so easily. We don't see it in a news media. We don't see it in just in general day-to-day life where those things are taken up by such bigger topics, whether that's like palace intrigue and, you know, who's running for president and whatnot. But these things are incredibly important. And we're thinking about like, if you live in the West, I would say like, one of your two biggest concerns is either drought or fires. And to me, it's kind of like, why, why are we doing this? And so it's really hard to one track and follow this. So I think it's awesome that Quinn is bringing this up to us so that more people that are listening to this can hear it and sign petitions like this. Call your local congressman, call your local senator, call whoever. Um, it's just kind of it's ridiculous that we're, you know, we all know that we're entering an age of fire and mega fires at that um, for reasons we've all talked about on this podcast a ton, tons of times before. But the fact that <clears throat> firefighters in generally are paid a very low salary and that they're potentially going to be paid even less and amidst this crisis is just kind of, I don't know, sometimes it just disappoints me because we just get so focused on such bigger picture items um, that really have less of a day-to-day impact on our lives and things like these have massive impacts on our lives. So um, I urge people click the link that's going to be in the show notes and uh, sign the petition. Um, Do something about this. Mm-hmm. And I will say Thanks, these Quinn. are, yeah, uh, I will say there, these are the things too, like, you know, sometimes we talk about these really big picture things like healthcare and, um, you know, corporate taxation, all these things. It's pretty hard, I feel like, to have an impact on your local, you know, whether that's state or federal representative. But these things like, you know, if you get your local representative uh, on board, if you're talking heavily with them, if there's like kind of an upswell in your community around this, these are the kinds of things that don't get really opposed in federal government. They're, you know, like you're not going to be some big divisive bill. These things can get passed. They just need attention more than anything. So um, if you feel like, you know, sometimes you write a congressman or senator and doesn't really do much, things like these, you can actually have an effect. I, I just have that kind of feeling about it. Yep. Same. Same. Okay, from here, where do you want to go next? Uh, well, this was one that you sent along from J-Bob. Um, pretty interesting, only because I was thinking some of the topics that were um, most recently talked about on one of the latest Blister um, podcasts. Um, related to housing and mountain towns, crowding, all the stuff we've talked about a lot. Um, it actually got me thinking about it. So um, J-Bob put this product um, called the Hyper Shell. Um, it's product, it says one horsepower exoskeleton for everyday adventure, and it's available for pre-order. So it's an exoskeleton that you wrap around your waist and lower legs that helps you walk gives you more power. You know, they use things like be your own Sherpa. Um, It gives some day, um, like it's got 25 kilometer battery range. It can go up to 25 kilometers per hour. Um, It's uh, offsets 30 kilos of weight. Um, It's a battery operated 
powerful exoskeleton. So, you know, we've seen things like this. I feel like if you've fallen skiing forever, there's been these mechanical advantage kind of things. You'll sometimes see an older skier, maybe with bad knees, that wears kind of some weird exoskeleton thing and, you know, helps them ski, maybe, you know, puts less pressure on their knees or whatnot. But this is kind of one of the the first big ones I've seen that actually has a lot of power to it and increase your, like, let's say uphill speed, your running speed, the, the amount of gear you can carry. But what it got me thinking about was specifically a few things. Like, one, is this going to be allowed in the wilderness? Because currently, wilderness allow does not allow for any sort of motorized device to be in it. And this, to me, is a very motorized device. So, I mean, right off the bat, I answer my own question. You can say it's probably not going to be allowed. But then, should it? There's a lot of different a lot of different lines you can kind of go with this. Like one, you're like, are we is this something that's gonna allow more disabled access into wilderness areas? Could that could be a great thing. But where do you draw that line? And you know, there's a lot of questions that can be brought up among these. First of all, which is I would pose to you, like, should these be allowed in the wilderness? Yeah, I I mean First of all, uh, we review products here at Blister, and mm-hmm. so there's always the issue of this looks really interesting and kind of wild when you first see it. One of the massive issues is going to be the execution of it. Does this product actually work well, right? Assuming it does. Let's assume for a minute it does. The execution of it is fantastic. Man, I think there would be a pretty significant um, outpouring of support to say that if this were to allow more individuals to actually get outside and explore, that would be very difficult to continue to hold a, sorry, we are not going to make exceptions on this or let that happen. What's a little bit interesting to me is on the sort of homepage of this Hypershell website, there is not much talk about it being used as a tool for the elderly or people that are, you know, dealing with injuries that have, you know, say diminished certain capacities for them. It's showing like fit photographers, so on and so forth. And so I think to be very clear, that does not what we've just been talking about does not seem to be the uh, the number one target or demographic. Not only not number one, it's not even no, it, it's it, not I being mean, promoted that way. It says no place too far, and then recede fatigue, expand your radius and freedom for professionals such as photographers. Hypershell can multiply your productivity for mountain climbers. Hypershell can be the Sherpa in your backpack. So you're like that. I agree with you. It's not saying this. I'm almost certainly assuming that it could increase. Increase access to places where, you know, whether it's from injury, whether it's from disability, or whether it's just from a lack of fitness, this will increase that. So there's like kind of two sides to this. And you, from a professional aspect, from a like increase your performance, recede fatigue, you kind of, you know, I feel like a gut instinct is to be like, well, why? No, just get more fit 
or, you know, we shouldn't allow motorized access into the wilderness. That is the a delineating line. And whether you agree with that or not, that is the line. And this most likely will not be approved for that. But on this other side, you, you can say like, well, this is going to increase the ability of people that don't have the ability to get into these places to actually get into these places. And then that gut instinct, again, is, uh, is to me a good thing. But you're then you start bringing up all these ethics and gray areas. So we go back to like the e-bike debate, which was like, I'm all for e-bikes. I see when I'm running in my backyard and I run in the morning, I swear it's probably 60% of the people out there are probably over 50 and on e-bikes. And it's great. I think that's awesome. You're allowing more people to go out there, have fun, enjoy the outdoors. Um, but then it was brought up in the last podcast. It was like, how far is too far? Uh, you know, bikes are already not allowed in the wilderness. Um, but like, are by the fact that people are using these motorized bikes to go further into the wilderness, is that having too much impact on wildlife? Is that having too much impact on the land? Um these are all questions that I don't have an answer to, but I think are things that need to be thought about. Um, and something like a hypershell, which even, you know, what what gray area are they walking into um, with this? So um, it's uh, I don't have an answer for it. We're going on gut reaction. I think these are really complex topics. Um, and I think it's going to be really hard to draw like lines that are in these gray areas because as of right now, it just seems like they're not going to be allowed to be going to wilderness. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that in terms of the wilderness areas. I also frankly think... Again, people should check out this page. We'll include a link to it in the show notes of the episode. This idea that like there's a lot of fit photographers out there already carrying heavy packs. Cody, you might know one or two of them. I've worked with – there's one guy I know I've worked with a little <laughs> bit. I think he's uh -huh. from like, yeah, like Switzerland or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's one of those. The, the, they're not buying this. They're not no. going to buy this. It's like, if that's your demographic, you you might sell 10. Like you might. I, so I think it's a fascinating technology, but I think you and I are right about who would actually be the demographic for this. And it's not the pretty fit, pretty professional photographer, athlete, climber, et cetera. That the, so you know, look, companies develop, grow over time. They're probably well aware of everything we're saying here, but you got to start somewhere. Um, so I don't know. I, I kind of want to ask you about this. So I, if we're saying right now, good luck with this, with the current demographic you're identifying, we maybe don't like your chances. And yet when we do talk about e-bikes, man, they're here, they're coming, they're only going to grow market share. That's my take on that. And I think, I think there were, there still are some legitimate concerns and questions. There are still issues, certainly in this country, with questions of access. Um, I think there are probabilities that, again, in some areas... I think we're seeing more and more people just blow off regulations, restrictions on certain trails where they say no motorized anything and people are taking their e-bikes up there. 
I think in this country that could end up resulting in some trail closures. I also think we have seen more and more evidence that, you know, it used to be, well, these e-bikes are tearing up trails more than non-motorized bikes. I'm happy to be corrected here. Please write in, point us to articles that, you know, contradict what I'm about to say. But I think that particular concern has largely been, uh, largely been proven to be untrue. So, right. So I think that we will only continue to see an uptick. I mean, you, you look at Europe, e-bikes are dominating mountain bike sales. So maybe in general, I think here, the United States, maybe North America in general is playing catch up on this. But as those bikes get better, as the bikes get lighter, as the batteries get better, and you're talking about, frankly, how much it costs to purchase a mountain bike these days, whether it has a motor or not, I just think we will continue to see more people opting for bikes that do have, that are pedal assist, battery, you know, have a battery capacity. And then we will continue to see people say, well, I'm not going to use it on this ride, or I'm going to use that pedal assist as a shuttle service, right? No longer taking a van or putting my bike on the car. I'm going to now pedal to the trailhead, right? Use that assist. Maybe then once I hit the trailhead, I'm turning it off. Things like that. And, and I think those are really interesting use cases. Shuttling sucks, right? Like shuttling is terrible. And so I think, um, this is not breaking news, but if we had pedal assisted or e-bikes that were really bringing down shuttling, running up heavily trafficked, heavily trafficked dirt roads in particular, that's a positive, let fewer cars, fewer vans, et cetera. So anyway, enough of my rants on that or ramblings for now. What are you, where are you? Are you in agreement with me or what are your questions or concerns? Yeah, well, what's interesting to me is quite often these arguments get placed in the, the realm of like the e-bike is the problem. Most of what I see, and I agree with you that like, Trails are not getting more torn up because of e-bikers. Like, I see them on my trails all the time. Our actually trails are in great shape right now, uh, mainly because we had a big winter. So they're like, you know, it has nothing to do with the fact that there's e-bikers mainly on them and has to a lot, a lot of effects of other things. But um, what I see as being the problems when I see being bring up, brought up is human issues, behavioral issues. You know, like, I th I've had this happen to me, and I think I've seen it as a topic of uh, consternation is like an e-biker comes up on your ass, whether you're running or on a no pedal assist bike. And they're kind of like yelling at you to get out of the way while they're on the up. And you're like, no, you pass when we get to a good spot. Like I've definitely had places where I'm getting yelled at and you're like, we're on a very thin trail with a steep drop off. I'm not pulling over so you can pass. You can pass when you get an opportunity. Um, those are behavioral issues. And the same way you just said that example of going on trails that are closed to e-bikes and poaching that, that's a behavioral issue. So um, I think it'll, you know, when it comes back all the way to the hypershell, like 
it's not necessarily the tool that's the problem in this instance. It's going to be how we regulate around it, how you make rules around it, who it's available for, and then how do the humans respond to it. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested to kind of follow this. Um, I feel like I've, we have seen these a lot. This seems like the most advanced kind of exoskeleton I've seen, um, but it does seem like a very small market, um, what they're pitching to. Um, and again, some of the, the rules that are going to come of this and where they're allowed and where they're not allowed, um, it'll be interesting. It's following the same path as e-bikes. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait, you know, 20 years from now when you're doing your 50 project exoskeleton edition. Yeah. When my knees are completely broken, I'm not completely unfed, and then I just use an exoskeleton. And then they'll be totally cool. They'll be totally fine <laughs> once I start using them. That's how we generally right. make our rules right. in society, right? <laughs> <laughs> is You mean our, our, uh, our measure is, is Cody doing it yet? No, he's an individual. Everyone makes their own rules okay. for themselves to benefit oh, themselves. I like the I, yeah. I like the idea that it was you personally. Oh yeah, like, no, Cody's that'd be the doing best. This now, so. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be the best solution okay. to our world. Just whatever I think is cool yeah. is cool. What I don't think is cool, not cool. We're not doing that. Not cool. This might come back to be relevant when we start talking about the bear. In mm. which case, I'm completely out, and I'm signing the petition against. Uh, Cody thinks it's cool, so therefore it goes. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Yes, stay for the end of this podcast where Jonathan and I actually yell at each other. <laughs> yeah, it's coming. It's coming, I think. Okay, where do we go next? So we've talked about this before, the landlocked public lands. So public lands that have no access because they're surrounded by private property. Well, we've talked also about this like checkerboarding of private land. So it literally looks like a chessboard or a checkerboard. And the way people, specifically hunters or any sort of backcountry public lands users will access it is by corner crossing. So they will go with very detailed GPX maps, um, specifically in this case, they were using an Onyx map and going to the cross, like the X of of the property line and stepping over. Um, in this lawsuit, these two individuals, these elk hunters, were using a little ladder to step over it as well. So the landowner ended up suing um, these two men who were um, caught on a, like a trail cam using this technique to never step foot on private property, but cross kind of the airspace in between private property. Um, the lawsuit was for over $7 million. Um, a very, I think we, uh, you know, categorized as the, the person doing it. it was like, a you know, some guy from New York or New Jersey and Wyoming suing elk hunters. So of course there's this small guy mentality, but um, in many ways it always felt like maybe money and private property was going to win. But the judge ruled in favor of the corner crossing hunters, um, which was really good news. Um, in you know, it still sucks the fact that you're going to have to like do this really weird thing to get into public lands. And I still think this is a massive issue in America in general. Um, I've probably said it before, but there's 15.87 million landlocked public landlock acres of public land, um, which is the equivalent of West Virginia. So like the state of West Virginia, our 
federal tax dollars pay for land that we as federal taxpayers cannot access. Um, so my main question is like, is this ruling a step in the right direction? And will this ever change in America? Will we ever be figure out a solution to, you know, private property pretty much completely dominating public lands use? I don't feel good about the prospects for us coming up with a really smart, wise solution to this. So I don't feel optimistic about that. I do want to say one thing about this, and that's I really don't like this idea where when we get into these issues of the public and private stuff, we have seen, by the way, I think a recent Jason Blevins article in the Colorado Sun covered this. There was another instance of someone who got injured on private land and sued, I believe successfully, a private landowner. And I'm like, you can't, I'm not in favor of that at all. Yeah. So I know you're bringing up a different question and an, and an important one about it's the private same question public, though. But this, well, this thing though, where it's private land, and a, I believe in this case, it was a person on a mountain bike, like rode into a drainage ditch or something and got hurt. I'm sorry, it's private land. That's on you. And I'm open to learning more about this as to why I shouldn't feel this way. But this idea that, you know, and in an, in a Blevins article, it was talking about things that private owners are trying to do, you know, to implement, to allow for passage. But I have to kind of side, I think, with private owners who are like, man, I'm letting you come across and use this you know, a section of my property and you're turning around and suing me when you get hurt? I don't, I don't know. Um, Maybe I'm not thinking hard enough about this, but that seems messed up. And I think for anybody who owns any land, just ask, would you want, you want people to come sue you? You're liable to what happens to that on your land? But I think this is one and the same, and this is where like laws need to come in, and this is where I'm a big advocate for like right to roam laws, and, and you know this comes into tort reform because like the Blevins article you are referencing, I read and I forgot to actually note it down as to talk about, but we're here talking about it in general because it was talking about the Leadville 100 and how every participant in the Leadville 100 this year has to sign a liability waiver, um, and it talks about a very friendly private property owner who's the Leadville course goes through his land and him always being cool with that, like being like, yeah, go for it. It's totally fine. And then because of this lawsuit, um, he's had lawyers tell him like, you cannot have people wandering on your land in this race. Like you're going to get sued and you're going to lose your land. Um, so we are talking about bigger issues like tort reform or talking about, uh, you know, much bigger picture things, but that is all part of it is like, even you can see how a private property owner, um, you know, some of the 14ers are surrounded by private property. They are, they want people to pass through their land, but they legally know that they're putting themselves in huge risk because of our 
the way we deal with land ownership and the way we deal with lawsuits in, in, in America to, to just allow people to freely pass through their land. And so it's like, it's kind of one and the same. Like I can see why people become just like, there is no gray area here. It's either black and white. You're not allowed on my land. Cause like, if you hurt yourself on my land, you're going to sue the shit out of me. And I might lose this land. Um, on the other side of things, even if you're friendly, that might happen. So, um, I think this is just one in the, one in the same kind of like it, it laws need to be passed. Amendments to laws need to be passed when it comes to whether it's accessing public land, whether it's creating easements for public land, whether it's creating, like, if you are an individual going through to uh, public land and you're crossing through private property on a designated route, you're not allowed to say, or I don't know what it is, but it just seems like, you know, we're continually going down a path that I think has actually gotten worse over time um, as opposed to better. And I know, and I know this again, and I know they're a sponsor, but Onyx is a big fighter and was helping support these two elk hunters because public lands access is important for us. And like, I, I know they're putting a lot of money and a lot of time and effort into advocating for public land access. Um, so when you can get big companies like an Onyx behind it, I think that can help a lot. But uh, it's also one of these things I think that we as individuals that live out in the West need to be aware of and also, you know, making an issue of. So let me ask you, actual prediction, five years from now, 10 years from now, do you think we are in a better position when it comes to these issues? Have we figured out a better solution? I think it's going to stay the same. I think that's the one thing that is pretty enshrined in our American culture and American government is that private property is kind of like one of the can't touch golden idols of America. And so, you know, what was it? The I forget the antidote, but it was like in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it used to say life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And then they amended that or they changed it. And so it's like, Private property is like such, it's just this like, it's like a godlike belief in America. And I think it will always dominate. I don't think our culture has gone so down the rabbit hole of private property that a right to roam law will never pass. Um, you know, again, I always hearken back to that bike trip and because you're moving through land slowly and seeing the amount of no trespassing signs, the amount of antagonism we faced if we were just a little bit on someone's property. Again, I now can also understand why, because we could potentially sue them, but it's also just felt like, this is my property, get the F off of it. That was kind of the feeling. And it just becomes this like, this is my land and no one else is allowed onto it. And it's, I think that's culturally a lot different here than in a lot of the world. Okay, so... Just to make sure I'm tracking with what you're saying, I agree with you. There seems to be something deeply embedded in this country with property, private ownership, etc. You also, though, seem to agree with me that this idea that if there is, you know, if people are permitted to cross, we're both, I think, saying don't turn around and sue the landowner. What, I mean... Would that then be if we had to make not so much a prediction, but like what would us something of a solution or to put us in a better spot, 
private property is not, (laughs) that is, as you say, like that's not going away. But what about legislation that said, look, okay, tell you what, compromise here. We will provide more rights or landowners can say, sure, you can cross here. You are effectively by doing so signing a waiver to say you can't turn around and sue the owner. I would yep. be in favor of that, right? Yeah, it's, just, it's like if you don't like it, then don't cross. And right, one of those one of the stories that came up was someone in Colorado had a kind of post with a QR code on it, and it was like hit the QR code. You're effectively signing a waiver saying, and then they'll let you sign that, and you can cross, but you're not allowed to turn around and sue. I'm kind of in favor of this. I agree. I don't know. I think that's that's great. I, I think like, you know, there's so many things I've read about like our legal system when we talk about tort reform a lot when it comes to the ability to sue in America is like it's much easier to sue an individual, a corporation. It's just compared to so many other Western democracies. And part of that is actually a benefit. There are many ways that the individual has been able to check the power of corporations to put safety implications in place. Obviously, we read a lot of the stories like, you know, someone spills hot coffee on their lap and then sues McDonald's for millions of dollars and you think it's ridiculous. Um, We obviously know on the opposite side of things when it comes to like ski areas and in Europe, it's like, hey, you're on the chairlift. You you kill yourself. That's your problem. Whereas in America, we don't have that. And um, so I'm saying when it comes to this private property stuff, I bet there is a lot of implications to some sort of legal reform that I have no idea about. I have, I have no idea about private property law. And so, the, you know, those are the kind of gray areas that I, I would be interested in learning about. But I do think, like, the solution you're talking about just really raises individual awareness. Like, hey, people need to – if you're a willing participant in people crossing your land, then here are some things you can do. Um, but I do think there's, you know, again, that – Property, private property culture is so enshrined in American culture that it's just kind of like most people are just like, nah, I'd rather build a fence and keep everyone off of it. I mean, that's at least what I've felt like I've encountered out there. So um, I, I would hope that there is, you know, going to be in the future, you know, laws, amendments, tort reform, stuff that makes these, you know, 15.87 million acres more accessible. Um, but I, I don't, I actually don't have much hope in it. I, I really don't. I think we need a palate cleanser. Cool. Um, do we want to go to, let's go, let's go to the phone. <laughs> yeah, this is a great article. So, um, <laughs> this comes from the sun. Um, so very tabloidy, um, Skiers embarrassing checklist of life goals revealed on lost phone, including get jacked and have three girls on roster. So first, I'm going to go through this list. So the the scenario is someone's phone was found at a ski area and somehow they got access and there is a, a list of things and a goal. And someone decided to look at the phone and then take a picture of it. And um, now it's spread in the news. So um, 
uh, we're going to cover a couple different topics here, but uh, the first, I want to see if you can identify whose phone, what nationality of person this is <laughs> mm. from the, the list. So, number one, get jacked and be at 87 kilograms. So, hint there. Mm -hmm. Two, yeah. quit all nicotine. Three, have $25,000 in bank account. Four, have motorbike. Five, get better at fighting. Six, get good <laughs> marks at uni. Seven, have three girls on roster. Eight, don't get haircut for three months. So, where do you think this person is from? <laughs> there, there's a lot to go over uh, on this list of eight things. I'm kind of obsessed with number eight. Don't get haircut for three months. That seems like a wildly attainable thing to achieve. I can tell you it's easy to do. I go like 12 <laughs> months. <laughs> so don't get haircut for three months. I think you got this one. Guy. I'm assuming this is a guy. Yeah. I'm also, okay, can you, you told me like I was not allowed to look at anything other than this screenshot of the phone and the list of eight things. Uh -huh. So I assume, is this, I mean, we're talking about this in July. Did this, is this a recent article? It I is a recent like article. It this. is. It it came on July 24th. So there there's hints here. So obviously kilos yeah, yeah. So, being a hint. Yeah, kilos. And the and language. Other, if not for the... If not for the kilos, I would have thought, okay, so somebody's skiing in July. Um, so this could be, you know, somewhere in Utah, somewhere in California. But the kilos thing, I think this is a Southern Hemisphere. This phone was found uh, left by a skier in the Southern Hemisphere. And so I'm thinking it's written in English. So I'm thinking this is New Zealand or Australia. But given given the eight, I'm going Australia. And Nailed it. largely for some reason inspired by get get better at fighting. Yeah, that's the that was to me the key giveaway. <laughs> because like I feel like, you know, like you you see stuff on the internet and you see that Aussies kind of like to fight a little bit. They're a rambunctious bunch in general. So, um, yeah, you nailed it. Australia. I was okay. kind of, I remember just reading this and I think I just skipped along to the screenshot too. And I started thinking this, which is why I inspired. I was like, I want to get Jonathan to guess where this person's from. So, yeah. <laughs> Australia, very Australian. So, yep. but the other thing very. I wanted to go into was like, honestly, how embarrassing is this? Like, okay, there's eight items here. I'm going to go through the ones that I don't think are embarrassing. So, get Jack yep. to be 87 <laughs> kilograms. So, what's wrong with that? Like, I want to be buff. Nothing. I want to go to the gym. I want to look good. I want to be yeah. healthy. That's great. Number two, quit all nicotine. That's really good. That is not embarrassing at all. Yeah. $25,000 in the bank account. That's great. Like financial health. Great. Have a motorcycle. Yeah. I mean, motorcycles are fun as hell. <laughs> like <laughs> they're pretty cool. Um, get good marks at uni. That's a great goal. Well, you skip five. I know I'm going through oh, the ones okay. that I You're think are okay. The, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and then good, good, good. marks. So, by the, way, the other thing is, I think this lets us get good marks at uni. I, so we're, this is like an 18 or 19 year old dude. Yeah. It seems like it. You think? 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but get good marks at university, like, that is as good as, like, as that's a goal great. as it gets, you know? And then don't <laughs> sure. get a haircut for three months. I don't think that's embarrassing. I think that's awesome as a guy with very long hair who doesn't get haircuts for, like, once a year. Whatever you want to do, man, that's your style. Like, I am kind of picturing is like there are people out there that are addicted to getting their haircuts. And like, they're just like, man, I just ended up at the barbershop today. So those things, I'm like, really? Like, six out of eight of these things are not embarrassing. We shouldn't be making fun of this individual. Going in, getting better at fighting. I mean, the most benefit of the doubt I can give them is that like, maybe just does jujitsu, maybe does some sort of actually organized kind of fighting. That's great. If we're talking street brawls, not so cool. Um, and then three girls on roster. I actually have no idea have what that means. That's Well, Cody, yes, you do. Yes, you it, do. Come yeah, on. Okay, but here's the thing. Is it three girls, like, like you have three girlfriends at the same time? Or is it like you want to sleep with three girls in general which i think whatever i, I think the I most think embarrassing thing our, is i think our 18 i think our 18 to 19 year old friend is just hoping to have three girls that he's able to be hooking up with kind of in a regular rotation mm, okay i was thinking like whatever it is like treating women like they're marks on a belt never good I mean, frequent of 18 and 19 year olds. So those are the two things that I thought Mm -hmm. I'm in the fighting, which again, come gray areas, the the three girls on roster, that was the most embarrassing. But like, I kind of felt bad for this kid. Like most of those goals are pretty fine. Like, why is that embarrassing at all? Like, that's great. Can I go? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, number eight. Number eight is really at odds with number six. The fact that you've written down don't get haircut for three months leads me to believe you probably are not going to be getting good marks at uni. So I'm glad that, you know, get good marks at uni was higher on your list of eight things. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think I really like your chances because you can just like not get haircuts. And I, I don't think that should have made your top eight goals in life. Five and seven could have a bit of relation. So the dude needs to get better at fighting because he's trying to have three girls on a roster. And um, I don't know if this dude is, um, there might be some indiscretions here. Are these women seeing other people or not? Um, I think the guy might need to get better at fighting to, you know, if, if seven really is something he's trying for here. Uh, angry older brothers that could come into play, you know? So I think those things are related, but, um, mostly I think we're, I think we are correctly identifying. This is an 18 to 19 year old Aussie, maybe not the sharpest tool in the shed. That's my take on this. Mm, see, I, I, yeah, I mean, there's some red flags (laughs) here for sure, but I'm also like, Writing down your goals, they always say that's a really good way to like 
dictate your life. This wow. kid is writing his goals down. I'm, I'm, he has, you know, if we're going to rank them and if he's going one through like eight, as far as what he's going to put priority on, like having six good, good marks at uni, maybe should be a little bit higher. Number one being get jacked. <laughs> maybe, maybe that should be a little bit lower, but, um, but regardless, I, I don't know. I just felt bad a little bit because I'm like skiers, mm. embarrassing checklist stuff, life goals. And I'm like, a lot of these are fine. Like a lot of these should be, wow. you, know, you, you should be healthy. Um, you should have financial health. You should get good grades. A lot of those are good. Two of them. Yeah. The, the signs of a, you know, immature 18 year old Aussie boy, but you know, I, I, I didn't feel like it warranted the headline of this being embarrassing. Let's put it that way. This is the most charitable you've ever been on a reviewing the news conversation. That's huh. that's what I think. But otherwise, hey, if uh, if the owner of this phone listens to this conversation, hit up Cody because he clearly wishes to be sort of a big brother slash mentor figure for you. Uh, I do not wish that. I do not wish to serve in that capacity for you. But but clearly Cody does, and you you have a fan. So um, reach out, hit him up. Totally. I mean, I'm pretty jacked and I weigh about 87 kilos. <laughs> it's your soulmate. Exactly. It's your soulmate. I got um, good marks at university. Graduated with honors. It's good, good goals. Okay. Well, from that uplifting story, we're going to talk about runners and trail runners, ultra runners, and what they make. Cody, you brought this one up. So, so take it away. Yeah. So the article comes from Ultra Running Magazine, and the headline is, What Do Professional Trail and Ultra Runners Earn? Uh, It was done by Jeffrey Stern. And uh, they did an anonymous survey by nearly 200 athletes, and they were trying to gain some insights into kind of the financial situation of athletes that call themselves professionals um, in the trail running and ultra running world. guess like the main thing is you're going to have to go look at this article and look at these charts. I thought it was really well done. Um, I had some interaction with the, the author um, to see where kind of the line was drawn. Like, what do you call a professional and whatnot? And kind of used, I think, yeah. from his professional expertise, who to call 200. It wasn't being like just like, oh, you know, you put up some Instagrams because you said you got some shoes from on running we're going to call you a professional like this guy was very in uh knowledgeable about what's going on in this world who's competing in it who is sponsored by it and is reaching out to those individuals so um you know i think we're always kind of fascinated or at least i am about this world of what professional athletes in our kind of business environment make um, meaning that like in the four major sports, everyone knows what every single individual makes. That is very publicly available data. But when it comes mm-hmm. to being a professional surfer, a professional skier, snowboarder, trail runner, that's all very murky. And I get, you know, the sensation that a lot of people think we are rich and we do really well to the exact opposite. Um, so I was fascinated by this because I know obviously the ski world pretty well. I know what I make. I know what a a lot of other people make, and I kind of know just like what the general trend is. Um, in trail running, um, I'll just let's go with a couple of the heavy hitting numbers. Um, yeah, the biggest number, the biggest percentage of these 200, how much they make a year is zero to five thousand dollars. So, 34.2 percent of professional trail runners make less than five thousand dollars and or nothing. Um, 
the biggest number being not percentage, but um, professional runners that make $100,000 to $250,000 a year is 2.6%. So very, very small amount of people that actually do that. What is that? Four? Four people? Five people? Well, yeah. Wait, so just to be clear, because there was, yeah, 200. So yeah, four to five. Yeah, four to five. And then kind of like the what seems like if you were to kind of group some numbers together, you know, it's like the the range between 10,000, actually between, yeah, it's actually maxes out at like 60 plus percent make at most $20,000 a year from this. So kind of, you know, me knowing this world a little bit, I wanted to ask you first off, did like, does any of this surprise you? <clears throat> Short answer, no. You know, and we've, I don't know how much you and I have talked about this on reviewing the news, but we sure know a lot of people at a lot of different companies in the ski industry, bike industry, running industry, apparel industry, et cetera. We know a lot of athletes. And um, so, no, this is not surprising to me. Um, we have also talked about Again, I don't know if we've done this on past reviewing the news conversations. Uh, I think we've talked about this on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast and some other spots. But it seems like we've seen an uptick in the model where athletes are also serving in other roles or capacities at companies. And so they might be helping on the sales side of things, or they have contracts, right, uh, specifically with product development. And honestly, I have said in the past that that is a model that I am in favor of, in part because I think that it can lead to more longevity for incredibly talented, incredibly skilled athletes, you know not just having value so long as they are among the top in their particular athletic endeavor, but if they are learning skill sets and contributing to companies in ways that can extend well beyond the peak of their athletic careers. So um, I don't know. Those are just some of my thoughts, but short answer is no, not surprised to see this. How about you? Well, yes and no. I'm not surprised to see it. It's a it's a small kind of niche sport in many ways. Granted, you look at like people's followers. You look at Killian's followers. According to Walter, has 420,000 followers on Instagram. They're pretty big names. Um, so in a certain way, it does surprise me because one, some of the top athletes do have big names. And then two, like these companies that are behind it. So I'm just going to go through like independent companies that are very specific to making shoes alone. On running, last year's full revenue was $1.3 billion. Hoka, this year, $1.4 billion. So like, you know, obviously this group and they go through the the lists of companies that these um, these runners are primarily sponsored by. So uh, Solomon is the biggest one at 15 percent, um, you know, and I think they're about a billion dollar company. I'm not entirely sure, actually. I can look it up. But, um, you know, North Face, obviously they're a lot bigger than just running, um, but I wanted to bring up just specific to running. So you're kind of like in a certain way, I am surprised by the fact that, you know, two very specific running companies are making 
over a billion dollars and a majority of people are making very little at it. And I agree. We go to this value. We go to like, what are you bringing to the company? More than anything, I just think it's a really good investment. Like I think of someone like, uh, do you, you, you've talked to him on your podcast, Jeff Colt. It was very surprising to me. Jeff Colt, he's kind of running um, uh, ZipFit liners in North America. Um, I knew he was a runner, but he was gunning for a podium finish at the Western States 100. And like, and I saw he's sponsored by On Running. Uh, I don't know what he makes. I haven't talked to him. Um, but let's say like you're on running. If you invest in someone like Jeff to train full time, to have personal training, to go on, give the financial tools to pretty much be a professional athlete at this and get that podium, be on that top, win it, then you're going to get more out of that individual. And so that's one of these things I sometimes see with, with companies. They're kind of waiting for individuals to go to the top and then they get showered with money. Whereas if you invest in individuals, you can get that return, I think, in an exponential way. Um, when I was working marketing at Arcade, when I do my own kind of market research as a professional athlete, I try to kind of figure out some of the business behind what athletes do for companies. My general takeaway is um, in this day and age, athletes are one of the few things that you can invest in on the marketing side that has an exponential scale of return. Um, meaning, I think we've talked about this digital advertising, like let's say I put $3 in and I get $1 for every out. Digital advertising, you can track it, you can see, oh, I'm going to put this in and I'm going to get 1x return, 2x return, 3x return. It's very, you know, very measurable, but it doesn't scale. You can't do that on like, well, as a company, let's raise $10 million and put $10 million in and we'll get $30 million out because of digital advertising. It doesn't work that way. But when it comes to athletes, it kind of does work that way. Like I think of a company like Solomon investing in someone like Killian and investing in a team of juniors and fostering that talent and letting Killian become Killian Journey by giving him the financial support to be a professional athlete, to train specifically for this and to become you know, the most famous runner and ultra marathoner in the world. And I think that was really big into developing Solomon's business. So that's what surprises me is being that these are billion dollar companies and they're not investing in their athletes, which could pay off for them in the long run. I think it's a short-sighted thing to look at athletes as just the, what is the exact dollar they're bringing in now? Like, I think it's a program that you invest in them and they can bring a lot more back. Possible counterpoint. I don't even know if I believe this, but I want to try this out. Okay. You, you bring up the example of Killian, but Killian mm -hmm. is pretty close to a one-of-one. One. Yep. And so, you know, how much... You know, we're seeing a, what, 2.6% number where athletes are making, you know, relative to this whole graph, like a pretty significant chunk of money. So what you're talking about, though, is more of a kind of feeder system, you know, almost a farm system where we're not, yeah, sure, like maybe easy to say, like, invest in the absolute best of the best of the best in terms of a Killian, but you are talking about spreading the wealth, I think, 
in the hopes that maybe we are um, going to invest and allow good, potentially great individuals, right? And we're going to cultivate them. And it seems like that's maybe a slightly different model, at least given the the name, the one example you've talked about here. Yeah. And I well, because athlete marketing starts at the grassroots level. It starts at a local level. It starts with, you know, I I how I was found by Solomon was because when I was a junior racer and because your local rep, you develop a name in your area. That's like a corporate kind of structure and program to foster talent from from the youth. And to me, I just think about it like if you let's say you have a marketing budget of a hundred thousand dollars and four athletes in particular, and specifically a junior feeding feeder system, and you're kind of spreading it out there and sixteen year old runners who show some promise, you're giving five thousand here, five thousand there, ten thousand here, ten thousand there. If you have the chance to potentially make a hundred million dollars off, which is I would honestly say Killian probably brought Solomon a hundred million dollars. There's no way to totally you know, measure that, but they are a massive brand. Like, wouldn't you take that bet? Like take a hundred thousand dollars every year to make a hundred million. And so I look at this again as like athlete marketing from what I've researched. Um, obviously it's going to have a bias and a tint because I am a professional athlete, but I see a lot of success with us. And so that's where I see like ultra running is growing in popularity um, these companies behind them are huge. I'm a little surprised their majority, 60, 70% of the people are making so little at it. And I think it could behoove these companies to do better at it. The fact that Solomon is 15.1% of the primary sponsors in this, so um, yeah, it was like 45 people or something, shows you that Solomon is invested in grassroots marketing, getting people on the feeder system, which is what got them someone like Killian. So that's where I kind of see it as being like, you know, if you are Hoka, if you're on, if you develop that junior program, you start putting more money into it, you could have the next Killian. And yeah, Killian is Killian and there's never going to be someone exactly like him, but there's probably going to be someone that has a big name as an icon of the sport in the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, we're watching Courtney DeWalter become that in running right now. Um, again, another Solomon athlete. So I, I, you know, not wanting to toot my own sponsor's horn, I, but I also think they've done a really good job of being like, we're taking this system we built in skiing, bringing it to running, and that's why we have the best names in running. Hmm. I like it. <laughs> I think we should talk about bears. Bears? Like your terrible football team? Mm-hmm. Or the Stop. B plus show? <clears throat> I, do we get to talk a little? Can we do a little NFL tangent? It's the middle of summer. I'm, uh, no one's really heard us talk about the NFL for a while. And I just want to say this is the official time in the season where I naively start feeling optimistic about the upcoming Chicago Bears season. It's happened. So I just want to document that. You know, the the pain, the tears, the depression, that's to come. But right now, Cody, feeling feeling pretty good about things. It's happened again. That that seasonal naive optimism, it's it's got me. Well, I've got optimism because my team's been to the NFC championship game like what <laughs> three out of the last four years. 
can't get over that hump. We just need to like we have four quarterbacks. Brock Purdy's pretty good. I'm I'm all about him, but but I'm in that level of I'm like tracking like training camp reports, like you know what is the completion mm-hmm. percentage, which is just ridiculous because you obviously it has no bearing on the success of the season. You know they're throwing against yeah. air with no pads on, and they're like, damn it, Trey Lance went six for eleven today. You know, dread. There's two drops and he had an interception. He's screwed. So. Yeah, but I'm in that point of season. It's like, you know, it's kind of the doldrums of sport. Granted, baseball's pretty good right now. Hmm. Hey, by the way, we were just talking about athlete contracts. And I, there's one thing in particular that I wanted to bring up, though this has been a pretty remarkable month or two, you know, when we've had things like Lionel Messi, right, starting his career in the United States. Uh, for pretty significant contract. We've had the offer, Mbappe's offer, for something like $776 million for a one year, year to go play for one year. That And then on top of that, something like a $300 million buyout. So it would be over a billion dollars uh, for a Saudi league to get Mbappe for, I believe, a single season. But... I wanted to bring up, because this has been among some of my friends, like a kind of a, a, a topic of conversation. Did you see that uh, Boston Celtics player Jalen Brown signed the highest contract in the history of the NBA? I believe it was five years, $304 million. Did you see this? Yeah, I did. Yeah, he's the best player in the NBA, okay. right? Yeah, like that's what it says. No. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No. no, I mean, I just look at it this and like I come from that rational point of view. It's just like whoever is going to get the next max contract is going to be the biggest ever. I was alive and a fan of the 49ers when Jimmy Garoppolo was the highest played player in the NFL. And that was that was shortly followed up by like two months later, I don't know, Stafford was, or someone like four other quarterbacks passed him. So it's just like, it's a product of the marketplace. It's not a judgment of he's like the best player in the league. It's just kind of like where the money, where the money is going. And it's, it's really interesting because I feel like the only thing holding, you know, cable TV or satellite TV or an actual like live TV is live sports. Like that's the only thing holding it together. So the, the prices for, you know, contracts for players to how much money the teams are making to their valuation, to what, you know, um, companies like ESPN are having to pay for rights is just going through the roof. So um, I don't know. I, it's just like I look at it realistically. Yeah, it's shocking, but that's just kind of the way that media is working right now. One, it just – this is absolutely not sustainable, right? Like I, I, it, it's unfathomable to me. Like we are seeing this leveling up of contracts, though in the NFL, I think that is more – your terrible Jimmy Garoppolo uh, notwithstanding, it is often among the top players in the league we're seeing like these bigger and bigger contracts. That's not what's happening in the NBA right now. And so at what point does the music stop on this, right? And there is a major reset 
But that reset's kind of like starting to happen now. I don't know if you, so there's two good podcasts just in general about media um, that I like. One is the Press Box. Do you, I don't know if you listen to that. It's from The yeah. Ringer. Um, yep. But then there's yeah. also Derek Thompson doing Plain English did a thing about just cracks Plain in the English. foundation of uh, Hollywood, of streaming services. And it's just showing like what's been happening in the last five to 10 years in streaming, like Hollywood managed to make itself go from a very profitable business to a very unprofitable business in the span of five years. And I think we're already seeing that. Like you, you if you're looking at ESPN, which is trying to get sold by Disney, trying to find a, a partner for them, like Disney is looking at ESPN, which was once a giant cash cow, and they're thinking it's a burden to them, even though, you know, they're paying tons of money. They host all of college sports. Like they have these massive contracts. Like ESPN is the behemoth of sports, but that's now becoming a cash cow, a cash drain on something like Disney. I think we're going to start to see the cracks in these foundations. Like um, the reason why contracts for athletes are going up so much is because TV rights are going up so much. But I think they're going to start to level off a little bit, and you know we mm -hmm. won't see it as much. Granted, football is the eight hundred pound gorilla; it can do no wrong. But I think those other sports are kind of. Are, are seeing some some potential breaks. One last thing I want to say on this, uh, specifically back to Jalen Brown. Originally, when I saw those numbers, it was just kind of eye popping to me, and I was like, "Man, it's it's not even clear that he's the best player on his own team." Um, that's likely Jason Tatum, and I don't think that's a controversial point. Um, Jalen Brown is a very good basketball player. But I like Jalen Brown, the person, far more than I value him as a basketball player. There's, there's so many good basketball players in the league right now. Um, but one of the things that was really interesting, and a quick Google search would get people to this if you haven't seen it already. Um, did you happen to catch Jalen Brown's press conference where it was brought up like, dude, you just got the biggest contract in the history of the NBA. What are you going to do with this money? And it was, and this is not new. Anybody who's kind of followed Jalen Brown knows that this is a really thoughtful person overall. And he laid out one of the most articulate things I've ever heard any athlete talk about in terms of what he hoped to do with his money to start getting what his in his words to create black wall street in boston this you know I, it maybe sounded initially like i was saying like what in the world somebody of um the the caliber of player of a jalen brown shouldn't be making 304 million over 5 years but somebody who i think has the authentic uh authentic sensibilities and i i believe what he says here I think Jalen is going to do good things with this serious amount of money and we'll see how successful he is in pulling some of this off, but I think it's real. I do not think this was BS in terms of his intentions and um, the more that's true, the easier it's going to be to root for somebody like Jalen um, and, and what he hopes to do. So I encourage people to look that up. He can let him speak for himself on this, but still probably the most thought felt thought through and interesting answer I've ever heard any athlete who signs a big contract, like, what are you going to do with that money? Yeah. 
I agree. Nothing to add. I think it's, I mean, you root for someone like him as opposed to like James Harden, who you know is just going to spend it on partying in strip clubs because he's renowned mm. for that. So, so yeah, no good things. Yeah. Um, okay. Before we get to mountain town advice, we, we're, we are forgetting one thing, most Canadian news, um, which came via Jonathan for the first time. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's not actually true it was I, I need to look up it was sent to one of our dear it was sent to us by one of our dear uh, blister listeners let me see if I can get proper credit here quickly so no I'm still batting wait a second I've, I've done a couple I've, I've, I've offered a couple suggestions on Canadian news haven't I I don't know well let's get to the news itself um <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you, can, you. you can keep looking it up uh, who gave it to us, this kind viewer. But you brought this okay. to my attention. Yeah. Hits all the typical topics. Um, there's wildlife. There's in this guy's garage. And, you know, this bear yep. just kind of tearing through his garage. What makes this Canadian and the most Canadian news is not necessarily the bear, because we know there's wildlife all over Canada. It's how this individual mm-hmm. treats this bear. Um Telling them all, oh, get the fuck out of here. Get the, oh, fuck, get out of here. But in the end, the the best part of it is the last two seconds. The the bear finally leaves his garage and he's kind of like following it out the backyard. And he he's like, yeah, beat it, you cocksucker. And that just killed me because I have never known any culture or individual outside of Canada to call animals cocksuckers. And this starts with one of my favorite shows of all time being the um, Trailer Park Boys and Bubbles is petting a kitten and calls his this kitten a cocksucker. And I think Elise and I have used that joke for like 10 years after that, but it's just the most Canadian thing ever to call a fuzzy brown bear tearing through your garage a cocksucker. That's a, the most Canadian insult there is. You know what would be more Canadian than that, Cody? What's that? I really wish that the creator of that video just embraced the bear. They became great friends. The bear came over every day to kind of hang out. And um, that would have... I would have, that would strike me as both more Canadian and just nicer. The guy gets really mad at the bear. Yeah. He's he's kind of cursing this bear out. But that's the thing and with Canadians, I, though. I would have rather... Canadians are nice. I know, but They're that's what I'm saying. Nice. Like, there's no, like, there's no malice with calling someone a cocksucker. Like, there's no, like, it, not the act... It's like, trust me, I hang out in Canada a lot. You call your buddies, it's like you're busting their balls kind of thing. Okay. It's like a fun thing. Like, the more okay. you can make fun of your... like. I was harking back to this uh, this trip I went with Mark Amma. I think I was like maybe 22 years old. It was my first time meeting him. He's like a hero of mine. And, you know, the, we were in Chile together. And as we start to warm up, he's just kind of like making fun of me more and more. And I was kind of like, man, he's just making fun of me a lot. And I was like, he's not so nice. And then it kind of dawned on me like halfway through the trip. I was like, oh, no, we're bonding because this is what guys do. And this uh-huh. is what specifically Canadian guys do. So okay. like Chris okay. Rubens is one of my closest friends and I think there's less people and there's probably no other person that makes fun of me more than Chris Rubens. Maybe Greg okay. Hill too. That's just the way it is. So that's why I'm saying there's no like okay. malice and ill will. So these to are it. terms of affection. They these are. are terms of affection. 
Totally. Okay. Like, like, okay. All, it's right. Not, all right. Well, then I'm back in. I'm back yeah. in on this dude. I mean, that's maybe okay. my experience um, up there is like that this, that's why I found it so funny. <laughs> okay. Um, by the way, shout out to Eric Iverson for submitting that Thanks, clip. Iris. And um, yeah, I guess that means I just, I don't get to take credit for this one. I, I should have just kept my mouth shut, but credit where credit is due. And we've learned a lot about Cody in this segment, I think. That's all we got. Cool. I next we got to do better next month. I feel like our our most Canadian news street cred is hanging in the balance. But it's know, a fun video of good. a bear. I like yeah. the bear. Okay, yeah. you liked it. All right, let's move on to Mountain Town advice. First, I just wanted to share. We got a really nice email from a listener named Parker, and he wrote. Hi, Blister. I, we're just named Blister now, Cody. So, hi, Blister. Uh, I just wanted to say how much I've been enjoying the podcast. I can't get enough of your definition of what a local is. Uh, and that is, i.e., someone who is involved in a community, whether it's trail building or advocating for whatever your individual interests or needs are. And shout out to you, Cody, because I'm not taking credit for that. I think you were really responsible for that definition. That a local is like you can a local is somebody who contributes, gives back to the community. Um, so I give you credit for that one. Anyway, Parker goes on and says, I live in Grand Junction, and that line alone, Cody's line, inspired me to go to uh to go to some community city manager meetings and advocate for a denser slash more bicycle slash public transit friendly city. At the meetings, I've met like-minded individuals, and we are going to start our own strong town meetup. Anyway, just wanted to say thanks, Parker. That's nice, right? Super nice. Um, ins- inspiring people with a different take on the definition of the word local. So, yeah, get involved in the community, contribute, give back, then maybe call yourself a local. No, no, I think I, that's again. Yeah, it's if you're if you're actively a part of making your community better, you are a local. This one's so good. This came in. Should I read the names? I think we should read the names. This came in from Brooklyn and Dane, and they say, "Hey, um, help us settle a debate. <laughs> Does morning sex before a ski day enhance or detract from performance?" In this situation, let's assume it does not impact start time. We aren't talking here about a big multi-day expedition, just a normal day where the goal is to ski hard. Thanks, Brooklyn and Dane. <laughs> Cody. <laughs> oh, sex is, before skiing. I know. And this actually, we were talking about this before the podcast. Oh man, it's gonna make me uncomfortable. But um so I don't know how to take this and I don't even know, is it like offensive? It feels like it's a little gendered or some, some gender norms behind it. I don't know, but this was like almost 30 years ago. So when I was a ski racer, there used to be this thing that we'd say, well, the guys do better if they get laid before they go out and the girls do worse. Again, I think there's some, I don't think, you know, there's some bad shit underlying that thought, in my opinion. Um, So it doesn't help in this situation. That was just what was said back then. Um, I will say I did win Junior Olympics after getting lucky the night before. (laughs) 
So in that regard, maybe yes. Um, but like, again, we had this thing where it was like either or. <laughs> I don't know exactly. So whew, this is a tough one. I would just in general, though, say yes. It increases performance because you're just happier. You just feel better. Hmm. You don't, you know, you don't have hmm. like, maybe there's a, you shed a little bit of self-consciousness. Um, you have that euphoric feeling going out there. Whatever the day brings you, the day already started great. It's like, you, you know, having a very nice breakfast in the morning, it sets yourself up for the rest of the day. So, you know, maybe there's some physiological impacts that I don't know about, but I would say overall from a mental side of things, I would say, yeah, I can go for it. I think you're going to have a better day no matter what. The happiness quotient. I like that. I think, you know, it seems like we're seeing more and more studies that kind of um, point to the idea or notion that people are having less sex yeah. as opposed to more sex out there. So I think we need to be pro-sex here. I think we need to be encouraging people, you know, responsibly. This show, we believe in the having of more responsible sex in the world, not less. And um, now, a couple other things I'm curious about. This whole notion that let's assume it doesn't impact start time. I'm just thinking about some personal experience yeah, it's always impacted it start time. Start time. <laughs> it does. It's going to affect start time. I can't think of like, yeah. Um, so, you know, at least if we're talking about good sex, it's impacting start time. I can also say I can't think of one time in my life where I've ever then been mad about yeah. the impact on start time. That's And that's where I, I'm going to say I'm pro it. I think it just is better in general um you know like uh, maybe there's some like if it's the best pow day of the year because again it does impact start time it has in the past i, I will say so yeah. um but i would say in general maybe you'll feel better but yeah you might be out there a little bit later yeah you're you're gonna and and like be fine with being out there later like what are we doing here i think we'd need to get okay. clear um priorities and assuming this is someone you actually care about, just have sex and enjoy that. And then go ski after that. But life priorities, I'm going to put, you know, responsible good sex ahead of skiing. Because I'm not a powder snob. So like we can go late and then we can just, I like I can go ski a lot. Um, I'm happy to ski when conditions aren't very good. So the whole powder panic thing, that's not really my jam. Um, have your sex, go ski, chopped up snow, let the other people have the fresh pow. You just had good sex. You're winning. Your life is good. And then you're going skiing. That's what, the, and going skiing. And then you're going skiing. I mean, what it's in awesome. the world? This is just, totally. you're winning on all the levels. Totally. So, uh, <laughs> okay. where are we going next? Brooklyn and Dane. Please send us a follow-up, Brooklyn and Dane. If like if there's something more to this question, we, if we didn't somehow answer it, please please follow up because I'm I'm pretty curious now. But have all the things, do all the things. Start a little bit later. That's our take. All right. Do you want to do you want to do this next one, Cody? You want to sure. read this one? 
Um, so this comes in from Wesley. Um, a message. Hello, I'm a big fan of Blister and all that you are doing and reviewing, especially the review the news episodes of Gear 30 with Cody Townsend. Um, it's actually the Blister. But anyways, I'm curious to know which language <laughs> is most spoken in the ski industry. My assumption would be English mm. due to its widespread use across many countries and industries, not just skiing. But I wouldn't be surprised if German or French were preferred across most winter sports and brands due to the industry's European roots. I'm trying to decide on a second language to learn in order to become a high, higher value contributor within the ski industry. Which language should I learn? Uh, thank you for all your hard work, Wesley. Um, so I do kind of have a take on this. Um, obviously, yeah, English is the lingua franca. Um, you know, it is kind of the most spoken across the industry. But if you want to do a second language, I would 100% say French. And it's not because French is the most spoken. And this may sound demeaning, and I don't want to demean my French colleagues, but it's because generally what I found, the French are the worst at speaking English. <laughs> so you go to Germany, you go to Austria, you go to Sweden, <laughs> Norway, very good English spoken. France, not as much. I think there's less of an emphasis in France on learning a second language. And I will say, like, I don't mean to demeaning. I don't speak a lick of French. Well, I can I can kind of understand. I can do restaurant French and whatnot. So we Americans are still worse because in average, I do speak English with my we French counterpoints. Worse. But like, if anything, yeah. like I studied Spanish and I graduated with fluency in Spanish and then pretty much proceeded to forget all my Spanish once I got out of college because I stopped working in restaurants. I stopped going to South America as much and I was working with a French company and I was like, really wish I spoke French because... It would be awesome to speak the native tongue. But um, when I work with other companies, I would, you know, the Swiss, the Austrians, the Germans, it just feels like there's more of an emphasis on education when it comes to the English language as opposed to in France. Um, you know, the French are kind of like Americans. That's where we're rivals. We we both think our individual countries are the best in the world and everyone should, you know, change their habits to adhere more to our habits. Have you not found that? <laughs> I think Americans expect you go like it yeah. is a quintessentially, I think, American thing. We just expect everybody to speak English. That is an absolutely horrible assumption on our part or expectation. Um, and we are the worst. I, I think we are absolutely the worst in this regard when it comes to knowing, learning other languages. We are. Um, kind of unfortunately slash fortunately in a luxury position that it often is a common language um, in many parts of the world. So we're able to get away with it. I think to our detriment, except when you really need to catch a bus or figure out, you know, like where in the world you are, then it turns out to be a pretty helpful thing in a luxury. But um, so I don't, I don't know that I see it as like maybe in, Maybe in France, since we're stock talking in stereotypes and you're the one who said this, maybe French, the French do feel like they are such a superior culture that everyone should just speak French or be able to. In America, I think it's driven more with like laziness and, and just like a false expectation we have than yeah. the, think, the thinking that we believe English is such a superior language. Uh, it's more lazy than superiority based, I think. Yeah. And I would say, like, in general, 
one of my favorite anecdotes about going to French, which kind of counteracts my own theory, is that like if you do try to speak French, like you go to a restaurant and the, the server comes up to you, doesn't know your French, speaks to you in French, takes your order, and you oh je vous donnerai un café, and they're like, would you like anything to eat with that? You try to speak French and then they just come back right at you with perfect English and you're like, damn it, it sucked that bad, huh? And they're like, yeah, it sucked that bad. We'll just speak English with you. So, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, but, um, I think it's just more valuable to learn a second language in general, just because obviously it allows, as, as Wesley says in here, it it increases your value within that industry, um, allows you to go work in places like that. Um, but I also think it's fun. Um, uh, some of the, like when I was fluent in Spanish and I remember going like deep into Patagonia and being in a town that, you know, there's no English spoken and just being able to like converse with the locals and converse with the people, learn about their culture, learn about this area. Um, you know, I would go on these trips and I was the translator and it was, it was fun. So I think it's a, it's a really good value to add, not just to, for your career, but just in life in general. Hmm. Thank you for the questions. Those are some good ones. And, Mm -hmm. um, all right, it's time to talk about what we're reading and watching. Let's uh maybe we just keep this to one thing because we're already okay. quite long and I think this could go long yep. a little bit unless again <clears throat> if you want to tune in and hear us literally yell at each other keep on listening. Are we talking about the bear? I think we got to. Okay. Well, this honestly is I've never been more disappointed in you ever. I know. I feel it. Then this take of yours on the bear, you're so clearly wrong about this. And this, you know, I feel like I know you pretty well. We've talked a lot about our kind of particular personal reading interests, you know, what we like in movies, you know, literature, film, et cetera, et cetera. You're, I, this is so uncharacteristic that you don't love the bear. And it's making me really upset, and I'm worried about our relationship. I wanted to love the bear, and I do like it. I can't say I love it, though, but it, like, speaks to me, like— I love cooking. I worked in a in a kitchen for a long time. I worked in restaurants. Like Anthony Bourdain is like one of my heroes. Um, um, you know, Top Chef is like the only reality TV show I watch, and I just finished it. And that is a great show, the best reality show there is. So when it comes to cooking, I'm like, I want to love this, but I just find myself I don't. Um, my biggest problem, what I'm seeing with this is like, there's. So, like, the overall ethos of succession, we've kind of talked about this being that the characters kind of don't change. They are who they are. And it's this big circular story of they all come back to fulfill their own destinies of who they are. The character development within this show, I think, is just kind of all over the place. When I watched the first episode of the second season, like... Richie being down there and being like, am I worth it? On um, being like a soft-spoken dude. I'm like, you were the guy that was yelling at everyone. The entire first season was just as hard-ass as it comes as the embodiment of don't change anything. And then one episode and five minutes in, you're all of a sudden just like super soft and kind. And and I was it was kind of threw me for a loop. The other thing, and I'll, okay, I'll go to this. Second. Wait okay. a second. This maybe you're distracted. Maybe the lack of sleep, you know, the sleep deprivation, parenting, you're trying to watch this holding indie. 
this because he's not it's not a soft spoken it's a man in crisis it's a kind of more like a midlife crisis and he's asking in that first episode like what is my purpose i don't i feel like i'm purposeless that's very different than a kind of sweet soft spoken it's a but, crisis. Uh, there was no there was no evolution to that point kind of like it happened so fast it threw me for a loop because I believe people can change. Mm-hmm. I'm not like Jesse mm-hmm. Armstrong. I think like we are a little bit of mix. We can change a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to see I want to see someone like Richie change and like maybe people cross paths along this way. Um and one of the things I do love about it I I do love a show that has this like it feels like the thesis statement of the show being that like this thing that you love may not bring you happiness is like kind of at the under roots of it in a certain way. Like it's just kind of like what you do. It is what you're good at. I don't know. That's what I take away from a little bit of it. And I do like that, but it's just some of the character development. It threw me for a loop. And then my only other problem with it is like it's reliance on noise and it's reliance on chaos Hmm. To fill holes. Um, there's a scene when I believe um, they're scrubbing the lockers out in the second episode and they're just making a ton of racket as they're like doing the lockers and um, Carmi's on the phone and screaming and screaming. It was just like, okay, like, yeah, I get it. There's a lot of noise in a restaurant, a lot of chaos, but it just kind of, it went on for like a minute and a half and I was just like, yeah, like, that felt unnecessary to that moment. It was just reliant on like hyperactivity and chaos. So I, I like the show. It's just like a B plus to me. Like it's a, it's good. I continue to watch it. I just think there's holes in the writing, the character development, and some of this reliance on like noise that just kind of, I don't know. It just throws me for a loop because again, I wanted to love this. It's right up my alley, but I just don't. How far are you in now? Um, only the second through the second episode. It's like that. It's where I I find myself. I don't season feel two this, second episode. Yeah, I don't yeah. find this need. Oh, I gotta go watch this. Um, and, you know, and like yeah. obviously that need to go watch it can be plot driven, but it's and it's not a plot driven show, which is totally fine. But it's just kind of like I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Here. Here's what I'm gonna say. Why is it an A plus? You. I'm not willing to give it an A plus. A plus, okay. we're, we're now talking about maybe, it, it, like I think we it, on our grading scale, if we're talking about A plus shows, I think we need to be back talking about the top five, okay. maybe top 10 shows in the history of television. And I'm not ready to give it, like grant it all time Pantheon status. I, I will give the show a grade of A. Like Pantheon, we've said, I'm putting Succession as the best TV show in the history of TV Mm -hmm. because of its combination of the greatest writing I've ever seen on a show, coupled with this wealth of some of the greatest acting performances I've ever seen on a show. So those two things, the writing and the acting combined, Succession is my number one all time. I'm not putting the bear in a top 10 all time. I am, however, giving it an A. I think you need to stick with it. You, yeah. you will. Like we, our friendship is over. Like if you bail on this series and like just don't watch it, but you will finish it. I predict you will like it more as you go. And I hear what you're saying. Some of the, some of my other close friends who I've talked to about it have said to me 
it's too stressful of a show. Mm-hmm. And I hear that at least a little bit in you talking about the noise of, you know, that happens certainly in that second episode. Um, so I understand people reacting to some of just the stress levels induced in this kitchen. Um, in terms of thing, themes and where the show is going, given what you said, you are going to like it more as you go, not okay. less. So, okay. Yeah. And you did say you gave it a B plus. That's a very yeah. good, actually. Okay. No, it, it, and it is. There's certain I things that- I'm just doing, I guess there's a lot of media claim about it. Um, you love mm-hmm. it. So it's like, I'm kind of like, mm-hmm. well, but I'm like, why don't I just love this? I'm like, there's good yeah. things about it. It's set in a kitchen. The characters overall are generally good characters. But again, I'm like, just not, I don't know. It just, after one season of watching it and being like, yeah, it was good. And then going into it again, I'm like, mm, it still hasn't fully, it's just, I don't know if it's whatever, you know personal opinion but those are the kind of things i'm like it just it's not fully doing it for me Hmm. there are just some absolutely beautiful moments though even in season two that first and second episode so for example that moment when sydney asks tina to be her sous chef is one of just an absolutely beautiful moment of modern television when you see this person who frankly doesn't think she has it in her to do more, right? It's, it's just this beautifully conducted scene when you just actually get to watch like, oh, wow, this person believes in me more than I believe in myself and the kind of pride and joy and gratitude that is so incredibly expressed by this actor playing Tina, there are a number of moments like this throughout, I think, season one and and even in these initial episodes of season two. Those are really beautiful moments that I don't think are that common. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't we don't get them all the time on on in modern TVs or movies. I cite that as one example. Yeah, no, and I are you just cold hearted? No, like you need to open your heart, Cody. I, I like, I do love the the, it's kind of like this deep dive into the working class and like in this restaurant in a working class city. There's parts of it I do like. Why I gave it a B plus, but again, it just doesn't quite hook me. So, (laughs) um, I think we've got that covered. I would love to hear other people's takes. See if anyone kind of. You know, I don't know, agrees with me, agrees with Jonathan. Seems like more people agree with Jonathan than me, but hey, that's my take. I'm like, I, I keep trying, keep trying. But um, I just wanted to go one last thing. Um, I just read a book called Lords of Easy Money by Christopher Leonard. Um, I would say that is a like a eight out of ten recommendation. Um, if you're interested in just kind of like if you're interested in learning about monetary policy in America, uh, the Fed to be specific, um, uh, from 2008 until today, um, it was a brilliant book. I, I really, really enjoyed it. It made you kind of see why like the Fed is so talked about, but 
Obviously, I don't think unless you work in the banking industry, work in the financing industry, we're actively trying to buy a home. You don't really participate in that conversation. It's just kind of like, oh, interest rates are here. But the consequences of those interest rates, what has happened over the last 15 years, how unprecedented the last 15 years of monetary policy has been, is brilliantly covered, unbelievably well-researched, um, really insightful book. I found it pretty fascinating. Sure. So um, I would have, I've read, I think, three or four or five books in the last couple months, and that was the one that stuck out, stood out the most. Lords of Easy Money by Christopher yeah. Leonard. Yeah. Okay. Kind of, I mean, it gives you like basis of like why VC industry, why the tech industry is just skyrocketed in the last 15 years and why it's kind of crashing right now. Sure. It's pretty, it's pretty sure. interesting. So, so yeah. Um, anything, last things to wrap up? I'm reading a book called Wine Simple by Aldo Sam as I continue to try to learn a bit more about the whole wine world. Um, so that's been interesting. I'm still working my way through Andre Agassi's autobiography open. And, um, that's one where there hasn't, it's not chock full of these singular standout moments that I feel like really grab you, but I, I am feeling like the longer I'm sticking with this, um, the happier I am to be reading it. And I think you made a great point when that book first came out, it maybe felt a bit more distinctive um, and maybe kind of helped open or set a tone for like real honesty in autobiographies. Um, and so very much still appreciating it. And um, uh, yeah, so we'll probably wrap that up actually this week. So, and then still slowly and very much savoring the pages of East of Eden uh, by John Steinbeck. I've been going so freaking slowly through this book, but once I'm done with open, we'll um, to be devoting more time to, um, yeah, working my way through Steinbeck. So that's some of some of what we're up to, I guess. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I'm going to try and go get a nap <laughs> in before my kid gets home yeah. since I've been up and not sleeping. <laughs> yeah, I... I, I think I have to say, I think you've, we've gone for about an hour and 45 minutes. You've done pretty well given the the sleep deprivation. So kudos to you. Uh, I think we had a lot of good food for thought on this one. And just promise me though, when you watch future episodes of The Bear, try to do it when you have been well rested, when you are well rested and Indy's not, you know, creating too much chaos in the room. I think the more you focus, the more into it I think you'll be. I hope, you know, I for know. our sake. But that's when I find myself like picking things apart a little bit. So maybe you want uh, me to be a little less focused. But no, I agree. No. There's some details. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be unbiased. I'm trying to get on your side, Jonathan. I haven't been able to get there. But that's why we, okay. we team up for these podcasts. It's not just so we hear two guys agreeing with each other for two hours. <laughs> Uh, God forbid. Um, hey, man, get yourself some sleep. We'll talk to you soon. We've got some other stuff to talk about in the works. So um, soon. Sounds good. See you, Jonathan. All right, man. <laughs> Later. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody, as always, for the conversation. And remember to check out that petition we talked about at the top of the episode about wildland firefighters and trying to keep them from taking a drastic pay cut. You can find the link to that in the show notes of this episode. 
you will also be able to find in the show notes of this episode a link to our Blister Plus membership and injury insurance. It is an incredibly valuable thing for any of us who play in the mountains to have. So please seriously check that out and sign up for that. Get yourself covered and then tell your friends and your family about it. Let's make sure everybody we know is covered. And then lastly, for Blister members, this Wednesday, August 2nd, remember we have our Blister Happy Hour live stream with Atomics Matt Manzer. That kicks off at 12 p.m. Mountain Standard Time this Wednesday, and you can find the link for that on our website in the Blister Member Clubhouse section, which you can find that on the navigation bar of our site. All right, everybody, that's it. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.